Good afternoon. My name is Greg Hamilton. I serve as president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, which is a team of uh, government relations uh, uh, representatives and attorneys that cover the courts and the state legislatures in Alaska, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Montana. So uh, we're very active. We've passed a number of significant bills, including Idaho's Free Exercise of Religion Act of 2000 and also the Oregon Workplace Religious Freedom Act uh, in 2009. So uh, we're very active on that level. Uh, we're very active on the lecture circuit in law schools. Um, in universities, uh, camp meetings, um, overseas, uh, giving lectures in Romania to parliament and parliamentarians, senators, town halls, uh, religious leaders, law schools, so on. Um, we're very active both internationally and locally. And so um, today's presentation is not necessarily out of my field, but I come to you not as a theologian, but someone who is uh, very much immersed in God's word and in the spirit of prophecy and with a deep understanding of constitutional law, specifically church-state constitutional law, church-state constitutional history, foreign policy, especially as it relates to international religious freedom policy, history, and uh, so on. So my purpose today is to demonstrate to you from the life of Christ and also current events the shifting church-state paradigms, meaning the shift towards churches coming together in an ecumenical unity to force the government to do its will as a response or a backlash to the growing sense of secular humanism, uh, the slide towards immorality, the degeneration of America, and so on and so forth. We don't see it yet per se, but it's coming and it seems to be starting to reveal itself uh, very um, distinctly in certain quarters of this country. And we will go over that. And so get ready for the ride because this is something that um, I'm very passionate about. My passion is paralleling the closing scenes of Christ's life, specifically his trial, his crucifixion and resurrection, as it relates to current events. In my reading of Desire of Ages and the Four Gospels together, I see every step in the life of Christ having a direct parallel to current events and Bible prophecy. It's an amazing journey. I urge you to go back and read the Desire of Ages. And if you, at, when you go to the beginning of each chapter, you'll see down at the bottom, it says, based on such and such gospel passages. Okay, read them together and then read it over and over and over again. I encourage you, I challenge you to read Desire of Ages 10 times and it will not only change your life, it will create such a substantive, deep, understanding of the great controversy more than any other book, even, I challenge you, than the great controversy. I also challenge you with this. I believe the four gospels on the life of Christ do more to unfold the book of Revelation than even Daniel itself. Um, and so I encourage you to make the life of Christ the center of your life, because if you do so, you will be the most blessed person on the face of the earth and you will help others to be blessed as well. You will find a new sense of passion 
a new sense of understanding, a new love and devotion to Jesus Christ. I guarantee it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to serve you. I pray that you'd give me eloquence, wisdom, power, knowledge. I pray that you'd bless each hearer here. I pray that you bless the minds and hearts. Give them understanding. May we be blended. May we both be inspired together, I pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, if you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. And before we go there, we're going to discover the science of crowd dynamics. I was senior in high school in Bakersfield, California, where I grew up, and I was trying out for the Cincinnati Reds this day. It was the probably one of the biggest days of my life uh, outside of my wedding and my marriage to my wife because I was so passionate in the sports and my brother was a, uh, was a switch hitter, could hit home runs right-handed and left-handed. He was a regular Mickey Mantle, who was my favorite all-time player, along with Willie Mays. And that was the era I grew up in. And I played center field, and I love center field. I was so devoted to my sport that I wouldn't even chew bubble gum. I chewed grass out in center field, which is really dangerous, but I didn't know that then. So anyway, the big red machine was there. Sparky Anderson was there, Johnny Bench, uh, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Pete Rose. They were all there at the Bakersfield um, Sam Lim Ballpark where the Bakersfield Dodgers was the farm club for the LA Dodgers. And all these teams would come through Bakersfield, but I was especially enamored with the Cincinnati Reds at that time in 1976. And the tryout went fairly well. I hit a double up against the left field fence. Um, I hit a, a long ball to center field that was caught. I hit a base hit to the right field side. I was having a good day. But then my last at bat, my fourth at bat, I struck out. I didn't think anything of it. My best friend, and I, I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood in Bakersfield, California, right near St. Joseph's Catholic Church. And Phil Adams, my good friend, he got up and he knocked the ball out of the ballpark twice. And, you know, the scouts really looked at him. And it was really funny. We, we, all my buddies and friends came home and we watched Channel 23, the NBC News affiliate for Bakersfield, California. And they said, the, the reporter, the sports reporter in the sports section for that evening news said, these are the kind of guys that'll make it. And they show Phil knocking it out of the ballpark. And then they show me striking out. And he says, these are the kind of guys that won't make it. And of course, all my friends <laughs> razzed me and teased me. And it was a lot of fun. And we all had good laughs, you know. But it was sort of an omen to come. Because the next evening was the awards banquet at Bakersfield Seventh-day Adventist Academy, where I went to high school. And it was to give out awards uh, to different areas, uh, including sports. And uh, I went with my girlfriend, and the other guys brought their girlfriends, and us jocks, so to speak, were sitting at the same table. We sat towards the back because it was really cool to sit in the back in those days instead of the front seat. You were really weird and queer if you sat in the front. Forgive the language. But that... That was an interesting evening because 
they were all, you know, slapping me on the back. Oh yeah, you're gonna get the, you're, you know, the 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 uh, athlete of the year award trophy. And so I was, you know, I was really upbeat and really excited because, you know, this was gonna be my night, right? And uh, my friend Tony, Mexican friend, my neighbor, and uh, we were the closest of friends. We were both weightlifters and really into doing athletic things together. I mean, everything, we did everything together. We palled around, did absolutely everything together. And then there was David and there was Rod. And Rod was this gangly, sort of skinny, very uncoordinated guy. I mean, I would, I, during, during flag football, I'd always bench him, you know. I said, no, Rod, you sit down. You're, you're just, you're falling all over yourself, you know. You're not, you're not really performing. You know, we can't use you right now. We need somebody that can score touchdowns and really catch the ball. So, anyway, but he was really a close friend. But there's one good thing he did. He climbed rocks. And he was a great rock climber. You talk about a spider, that guy could go everywhere. And so, not only that, but he had this long hair and he was really buff and he was handsome and everything. And I was just kind of your average guy, right? And a redhead to boot. And so, anyway, this was the first time the girls were allowed to vote ever in the history of Bakersfield Academy, at least as long as there had been, they had been giving out awards. And so, that night, Coach Bruce got up and he named the Athlete of the Year for the girls. And us guys, of course, got to vote for the girls. And it was my girlfriend who got the Athlete of the Year Award. I fully expected that Donna would get it. She did. And I was really pleased with her. And um, then it came time for the guys. And they read the name. They, they, they read the runner-ups and... and um, I was the final runner-up, and then they announced Rod. And he got this big trophy about this high. And guess what? He was my roommate in college. <laughs> and he brought his trophy with him. <laughs> and so for therapy, I wrote a poem. I didn't bring it with me, called Second Place. So it was my own personal therapy. And it was interesting, the crowd dynamics, because everybody in that audience Probably, I don't know, 500, 600 people were fully expecting me to get it. I was expecting to get it. I mean, it was just, it was fully understood that I was going to get it. But I didn't get it. And, and so when I, from that point on, I became very interested in human nature, um, uh, the whole idea of crowd dynamics and everything. I did a paper at Portland State University years ago on Hitler's ability to control crowds with his speeches and his style of music in the background and everything he did to basically command the attention. Of course, the people were really needy because the economy was so bad they were looking for a savior. And if you've, um, I'll share with you the title of a book about how the Christian right of their day basically laid the groundwork and basically ushered in and set up the foundation for Hitler to walk right in and become their national savior. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing um, when you look at the history of that. We the people in Christ's counter-revolution, this painting is a famous painting. You don't see it too many places. You've probably seen it before, but it's a painting that's in the Pitti Palace in Florence, Italy, and it's about the size may be a little bit larger than this screen and a little bit taller, and it's humongous. And um, 
It's by Antonio Cicero, uh, painted in 1891. And it's a famous scene of Christ's trial before Pilate. And you see all the, um, the powers of church and state arrayed right there in this scene. You see Pilate himself, of course, and you see Christ, you see the, the guard with a, a long a reed or whip in his hand, that's not a spear. You see the guy standing behind Pilate's little makeshift throne there, uh, a representative from Caesar himself keeping an eye on Pilate because Pilate was in trouble with Caesar, okay? And you see the soldiers back there to protect uh, Pilate. And then you see the advisors to Pilate. And then you see Claudia, his wife, who is telling her maiden, and then later Pilate himself, have nothing to do with this man because of a dream I've had. This man is innocent. Leave him alone. And so um, you see this picture. But the most important aspect of this picture gets lost. And the painter really understood the need to include the masses of people in the courtyard and up on the rooftops. You can barely see them, but there are people up on the rooftops and everywhere. And every, I mean, as many people as could squeeze into that, that praetorium, that courtyard was there to see the trial of Christ before Pilate. This man whom others called the king of the Jews, this man who had healed thousands, had healed whole villages, this man who was this uh, a most amazing purpose, I mean, person that anybody had ever witnessed or seen. It was literally God walking on the earth, and many were convicted and convinced of that. And yet, of course, many doubted, and many were jealous, and especially the church leaders and who, by the way, were also the state. But they weren't a state that was in power. The Sanhedrin, which was sort of the Jewish Congress, um, they were not in power. They were occupied by Rome. And so, essentially, we see the powers of church and state arrayed here with the fickle people. And what do I mean by pick, fickle? In Desire of Ages, it's very interesting. This is called the mob. And even though they were, many of them were hired by the chief priests to come and to follow their every word and lead, to take their advice and to shout out whatever they wanted them to shout out. Nevertheless, uh, Ellen White in Desire of Ages says this was a representation of the whole nation of Israel and, and, a, whole, and a representation of the world in the last days. And indeed, I've discovered that in my studies. It clearly is. So let's look at that. Let's see. Let's see how the people come in our time to demand a Sunday law based upon the parallel from the life of Christ. How is that possible? You know, I have, since I was a child, I've heard about Sunday laws until I've been blue in the face. And I am one who has just absolutely dismissed it outright as pure poppycock, okay? I have just not been very convinced of that. I ha I, and, and it's only been until recently, as I have been involved in the state legislative scene, how I see how this could come about. And it has to start at the local grassroots level with we the people. It's not a top-down federal thing that, comes, that the federal government imposes on you, the people. It's something that the people, led by the religious leaders, demand of the government or else. 
It's the threat of revolution. It's the threat of civil war. It's the threat of all kinds of things under the sun. The people become so disgusted. I mean, what's Congress's uh, uh, approval rating now? Was it between 8 and 12 percent? It's bouncing around as. Uh, who do they turn to? The people turn to the religious leaders, not only nationally, but internationally. And we're starting to see that more and more. Even politicians turning to religious leaders for answers and using them to uh, gain popularity. So let's read this passage in Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. Here's the whole church, so to speak, of Israel uh, arrayed to crucify Jesus, the teachers of the law as well, the entire establishment. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? You have said so, Jesus replied. And of course, Pilate was really mocking. I mean, the people had claimed, uh, some of them, that he was the king of the Jews. Uh, Pharisees had mocked him, um, saying he was the keys of the Jews, king of the Jews. And Jesus said, you have said so. He didn't confirm it, but he just echoed what he said. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. And what were these things that they were, he accused him of? Well, that he proclaimed that he was going to rise from the dead uh, after three days. Um, that he uh, called himself God, which um, he did sort of inadvertently, but not uh, directly. And so they accused him of these things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Jesus let the truth speak for itself and didn't try to be an attorney to defend himself. He didn't do that. Neither should we. Now, it was a custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Now, this is very important because the people were crying out and saying, what have you done for us lately? Which is the usual common uh, thinking that we have today when it comes to politicians. If we don't like them, you know, what have you done for us lately? We throw them out, okay? Or we should, okay? M many times we don't. But uh, nevertheless, that's basically the attitude here. This is not about an election, mind you, but nevertheless, it was a bargain, something that they did on a regular basis at the Passover festival, is to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And this prisoner was Barabbas. And if you understand anything about Barabbas, he represented himself as a national savior, someone who could deliver the Jews from the hands of Rome, someone who could drive out the occupying forces, the occupying power, and deliver Israel. Not only that, but to even establish Zion on earth for a thousand years of peace and safety. They, the, the chief priests and the rabbis and the teachers had taught the disciples and, and all their students that if this was the Messiah, he would drive out Rome from their midst and establish his God's kingdom on earth for a thousand years. But Jesus was not the political Messiah that they were looking for. Even the disciples who were with Jesus for three and a half years thought he was this political Messiah. That was one of their chief motives for following him. And Judas ever kept that before the disciples. 
there was this constant struggle for the hearts and minds of the disciples between Christ and Judas. Judas was his adversary at every step of the way. You can also read that in the chapter called Judas, titled Judas in the Desire of Ages. He was constantly planting this whole idea of political supremacy. And he was planting the idea in the minds of the disciples that they would be the chief men in Christ's administration, the chief of staff, secretary of treasury, secretary of state, on and on. You can just imagine what amazing dreams they had for themselves to prop this man up in a political manner. So this Barabbas, who's also known as Bar-Jesus, Sister White says that he was representative of a counterfeit, a counterfeit of the true Savior. So you have the great controversy right there at Christ's trial. You have this, this counterfeit being represented, okay? And you have Jesus, the true Messiah, versus a counterfeit Messiah. And we know who that representative is in the future, Satan attempting to impersonate even Jesus Christ himself. At the, at the, and his second coming. We're told that in the book, The Great Controversy. Look it up. It's amazing. Um, and so you, hear, you have this representation right here at Christ's trial. Verse 7, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Notice the words, the crowd, all the way through. I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 8, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Notice they started with a question. Okay? We want this bargain. We want you to release Barabbas and to crucify Christ instead. This was the question or demand. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest? Knowing it was out of uh, self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? But, Jesus, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Here you have the religious leaders manipulating the minds and the hearts of the fickle people in the crowd, the masses, okay? The religious leaders, all right? I could think today of talk show hosts, whether they're on TV, radio, wherever, stoking all kinds of propaganda, all right? Getting you to believe a lie, about something or someone. It, it's happening every day. All you have to do is turn on the radio. It's one political warfare out there, is it not? It really is in the United States of America. Gridlock the whole bit. I mean, it is, I, I, I dare say that our country, if we're not careful, is on the verge of civil war. Uh, I, I read a lot about the Civil War and the events that led up to it, and the parallels are very similar, eerily similar, with the, with the notion of states' rights to the extreme rising up, even coming up with the idea of nullification of certain laws they disagree with or don't like in this country. That spirit, regardless of which side of the political divide you're on, that spirit is raising up its head. And dare I say, as I will mention towards the end, the South is rising up again. Now, that may offend some people here, and I don't mean it to, but unfortunately, as I will demonstrate to you, that's actually happening. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them in verse 12. 
Crucify him, they shouted. So they're not just asking a question anymore. They're making a demand that he be crucified. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And in Matthew we're told, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar, which is a pure statement of blasphemy, if you understand Jewish law, to recognize this Caesar as a deity or a savior, a Messiah, was absolute blasphemy, punishable by stoning. Um, and here, the chief priests were leading the people to make this cry. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Ah, the crowd. Where are you in that crowd? And that's a good question to ask. Where are we today in that crowd? Are we part of the fickle masses? Or are we off at a distance, trying to figure it all out in a state of confusion like the disciples. It's very important to notice where the disciples were at this time. Do you, have you ever asked yourself, where were they at this time? Desire of Ages actually tells us. It says, the disciples followed the vast throng from a distance from the judgment hall to Calvary. This is key to understand in Desire of Ages, page 741, because they were in a state of confusion. They were trying to figure it all out. They were devastated. Here, their political Messiah was allowing himself to be crucified. What, what foolishness, they thought. And at the same time, they just felt, they just felt so horrible that Jesus would allow himself to be crucified, to be punished so badly. I mean, when they looked upon his face, they didn't even recognize Jesus. His visage was so marred, we're told in Isaiah 53, that nobody recognized him. He was beyond recognition. He was like someone who was a burnt corpse. We're told, look at Isaiah 52, the last few verses before you get into Isaiah 53. It's what it says. It's amazing. But this, he was so whipped unmercifully. If, if Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, did anything, it did that to make that, that point clear. Um, regardless of all the Catholic theology in the movie. So looking from a di on from a distance, trying to figure it all out, they were hiding from the authorities and dealing with their enormous grief and disappointment. But let's go back. Let's... Let's go back and notice something here. Let's look at the crowd dynamics at Christ's trial here. Notice what was happening, and this is from Desire of Ages. Like the bellowing of wild beasts came the loud cries of the mob, crucify him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. In fact, Sister White says, it was like a tenfold frenzy. Now, I don't know exactly what she means by a tenfold frenzy, but I think of the hall we're in now and how it echoes. I imagine that scene you see of the painting by Antonio Cicero, I imagine the praetorium, the, the cries were like being in the Colosseum or like um, Seattle Seahawks uh, Stadium up in Seattle, close to where I live. I mean, that is the loudest uh, football uh, stadium in the United States. And anytime any team comes to visit, you can't hear anything. Quarterback can't hear anything. Nobody can hear anything. It is so loud. It's so vicious. I mean, I would imagine you probably lose your hearing there. That's why I haven't gone to a game yet, um, because I don't want to lose my hearing. Um, 
not that I should go anyway, but anyway. The point is, is this was loud. The demands were real. And notice what it says about Pilate, his compromise of the mob. It says, typical politician here, Pilate yielded to the demands of the mob. Pilate dreaded the ill will of the people. Notice we the people factor here. Okay? He would sacrifice justice and principle in order to compromise with the mob. Another statement there. He found himself almost helpless in the hands of the chief priests and rulers, the religious leaders. Okay? While Pilate had been delaying to act, the chief priests and rulers were still inflaming. Inflaming. Did you get that? Inflaming. That's propaganda. Inflaming the minds of the people with a lot of untruths, slander, vicious attacks. All right? And the people would walk away believing a lie, as you see today in the political world. Like the bellowing of wild beasts came the answer from the mob. Louder and louder swelled the cry, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Friends, this is not just a matter of information. This is a matter of something we need to take to heart and, and understand very clearly um, and take seriously. We're told in Desire of Ages, page 379, that the disciples' long-cherished hopes based on a popular delusion, political and theological, were disappointed in a most humiliating manner. It was painful to Jesus that their conceptions of his kingdom were limited to worldly honor. For them, the burden was heavy upon his heart, and he poured out his supplication, supplications with bitter agony and tears. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was thinking very much, not just about all the people who had sinned throughout history, of which he was uh, being our Redeemer right then and there, and sweated great drops of blood. No, he was, if you read John 17, his heart and mind was, was for the, the seed of the gospel to be planted by the disciples. His heart and mind was with the disciples, those 12 men, or 11 at that point, because Judas was out betraying him behind the scenes with the chief priests, getting ready to capture him there in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And so here it was. They were in a state of confusion. Today, how many people believe that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years? I believe that Jesus Christ has called us for such a time as this, Seventh-day Adventists for such a time as this. Why do I believe that? Ever read Revelation 20? You ever read about the millennium, a thousand years? Most of the religious world, if not all of the religious world, interpret the last days or their eschatology as being a thousand years of peace and safety on this earth to do it either by force or through some other means. Okay, whether you're a post-millennialist or pre-millennialist, and I don't want to get into all that right now. But if you just go ahead and Google it, look, look those words up, premillennialist and postmillennialist, you will discover that they come to the same conclusion that that thousand years is here on the earth. Whether they believe the tribulation is before Christ's coming or after, or whether the millennium is before or after Christ's coming, it doesn't matter. They both come to the same conclusion that that thousand years of peace and safety is here on the earth. 
okay? And that either Christ is going to do it with his so-called secret raptured ones coming back, or it's the post-millennialists like Pat Robertson who believe that they have to establish God's kingdom by force on the earth, and that Christ can take his time coming back that they got things under control. Or whether it's the amillennial view of the Catholic Church that believes that there is no such thing as a millennium, a thousand years. It's a world without end. Theirs is called amillennialism. The whole idea that they are uh, led on earth. If you read St. Augustine's uh, City of God, that book very clearly points out their philosophy of establishing God's kingdom on earth uh, that's without end. Okay? Who needs God to come back when they already have the vicar of Christ here on earth? You see their point? It fits theologically. Forget about the doctrine of the second coming of Christ for them. They don't need Christ. Great Controversy, page 594, tells us about this scene. She says... Ellen White says, Before his crucifixion, the Savior explained to his disciples that he was to be put to death and to rise again from the tomb. And angels were present to impress his words on minds and hearts. But the disciples were looking for temporal deliverance from the Roman yoke. And they could not tolerate the thought that he in whom all their hopes centered should suffer such an ignominious or ugly death. The words which they needed to remember were banished from their minds. And when the time of trial came, it found them unprepared. The death of Jesus as fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. So in the prophecies, the future is opened before us as plainly as it was opened to the disciples by the words of Christ. The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented, but multitudes, the masses, the fickle people have no more understanding of these important truths than if they had never been revealed. Satan watches to catch away every impression that would make them wise into salvation and the time of trouble finds, uh, will find them unready. The second part of this, the very next paragraph, is even more powerful. Listen to this. When God sends to men warnings so important that they are represented as proclaimed by holy angels flying in the midst of heaven, he requires every person endowed with reasoning powers to heed the message. The fearful judgments denounced against the worship of the beast and his image should lead all to a diligent study of the prophecies to learn what the mark of the beast is and how they are to avoid receiving it. But the masses of the people, she says, turn away their ears from hearing the truth and are turned unto fables. The Apostle Paul declared, looking down to the last days, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That time has fully come, she said, and that was way back when. The multitudes, the masses, do not want Bible truth because it interferes with the desires of the sinful world-loving heart, and Satan supplies the deceptions with they, which they love. Oh, we say we're in love with our message, that we love the three angels' messages, but why are they routinely shelved Sabbath after Sabbath after sermon after sermon after every Sabbath? Why? I don't know. But I'm sick and tired of it. I was on the plane coming here last night, flying from Portland, Oregon, and on the front cover there was an article that really intrigued me. It was, How the Digital Revolution is Turning Learning Upside Down. 
about how students in high schools are so distracted they're texting and teachers can't teach anymore. And, and it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what method they seem to come up with, it doesn't seem to get the kids interested in learning anything. And defying professors, teachers, classrooms are a total wreck, they're a mess. And this article is all about that. It's the most current issue of Spirit Southwest Airlines magazine. And it, it brings out uh, two high school professors who have come up with some unique ideas and how it's starting to work to get the kids involved with simple smartphones. Um, and texting and other things and, and how they're making learning interesting, which a fascinating article if you, if you want to read it. But it leads me to, to my next little point here, and that is I believe we're living in what's called the Twitter revolution, the Facebook revolution. And I believe that it leads towards world disorder, not world order. How many of you know what the term or the second law of thermodynamics is? Okay, how many of you know what entropy is? All right, yeah, all right. It's, it's, it's fascinating when you, when you look at all this because uh, the, 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 the definition by many of your scientists, of course, is not the one we would choose. And there are several definitions, but theirs is the tendency for all matter and energy in the universe to evolve toward a state of inert uniformity. In other words, they believe that, that um, uh, uh, that disorder leads to more order, that, that disorder eventually leads to, to order, okay, which is, really doesn't make any sense, but uh, that's, that's where they go with it. My wife learned this in her chemistry course at Texas Tech University years ago, and um, she challenged that even before she became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. She was a Catholic at that time. And um, the, the other definition, which is more in sync with what I believe, is the inevitable and steady deterioration of a system or society, which, you know, uh, matches what I believe. Um, and I believe that we are heading towards world disorder, not world order. So for those of you who are hung up on world con wildlife conspiracies about one world order, I encourage you to give that up. Okay? I tell you why. It's because... It doesn't make any sense. We're told in Daniel 2 that rock cut out without hands that comes and destroys the image. Yes, they may attempt, world leaders may attempt to establish world order, but I don't believe that's where they're going. I think they're struggling just to even come to the idea of peace in the world. So if they're struggling even to get to that, how can world order ever be achieved? I don't think they're disillusioned with the whole grand idea uh, or have these grand illusions of, of, of a one world order. I don't believe that. I don't read that anywhere. Um, now, if you're into the Illuminati conspiracies and trilateral commission stuff, and I'm not here to offend anybody, but I'm telling you, uh, don't go down that road. I had somebody come up to me and say, well, you know, Greg, you shouldn't read anything because it's all a conspiracy. Anything you read, doesn't matter who makes it. And I says, oh, so if it's a publication from 3ABN or the Review and Herald, well, okay, maybe not, but, you know, who knows? We don't know about them either. You know, I, I, so what's left? If you don't read anything, then you become the god of your own opinion. You become... You know, you can come up with all kinds of underground material to support your, your thesis, and, and it becomes very elusive, and nobody can ever track where it came from. Um, I run into this all the time in my line of work. 
and it's, it's, it's really not too bright. I always say now, would you be able to give a lecture at a law school or a political science course and be able to present the information that you think is relevant? Do you think they would take it seriously? No. So, um, to me, that's important to understand. There was an article in Foreign Policy magazine. I don't, I don't know how many of you get this. I read Foreign Affairs Journal and Foreign Policy magazine and also the, the uh, review of, of, um, of uh, faith and international affairs, um, an academic journal. And when it comes to international religious freedom policy, and there was an article in here a year ago, or two years ago, maybe three years ago. Let's see. I think this is, um, well, should tell me. Might be 2011. But anyway, it's called, it's an article called Freedom.gov, the Unintended Consequences Department, Why Washington's Support for Online Democracy is the Worst Thing Ever to Happen to the Internet. It talks about how... Um, Mr. Zuckerman and the Google brothers and uh, uh, at that time Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all the big CEOs of the internet powers got together in Silicon Valley with President Obama and Secretary of State at that time Hillary Clinton and how they were going to devise the so-called Arab Spring. Even before the Arab Spring occurred, that's what they called it. They were already devising it and planning it ahead. No, this is no conspiracy. This is based upon um, sound evidence of what their attempt was. They thought that instead of sending in troops like President Bush did to Iraq and Afghanistan, we'll destabilize governments and create the spirit for democracy among the people in the Arab world. Well, all it's done is backfired and, and strengthened Al-Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalists, um, creating more chaos. Uh, who knows, it may lead to uh, democracy in the end, but I don't think so, um, not at all. And so this article talks about, predicts the unintended consequences of such a move. And indeed, this author, um, this American-Russian fellow, Evgeny Morozov, uh, was right on, very accurate. And so I thought it was interesting because he goes on to talk about the three-word revo three revolution the Twitter revolution, which enrages people. I'll never forget writing a letter when I first became a pastor to someone that I thought that I needed to gently rebuke, and I watched it backfire. Okay, it was my learning curve, you know, for a pastor that was young, thinking, oh yeah, this is the most eloquent letter I've ever written. And I sent it, and, and it was fully justified and everything, and oh, I did a good job, you know. I even read it to my wife, oh yeah, that'll show her, you know. <laughs> well, her and her grandchildren never came back to church. I blew it. It was stupid. People can read into anything, words. But if you face them face to face and speak kindly to them, you can win hearts and minds. When you talk to them over the phone, you have more of an advantage than if you write a letter. Okay, now it's better in person, but phone is second best. And I learned that lesson the hard way. Okay, the Twitter revolution, we have got the young people and even you and I have gotten into this wormhole of communication. It's like, oh, we have a thousand friends on Facebook, but, you know, most of them we haven't even ever met. <laughs> They're not really our friends, quote unquote. In fact, Facebook tries to prevent that and even punishes you if you contact too many people who aren't your friends. Okay, right? Okay, so 
The three-word revolution, it can create all kinds of overreactions and combustible passions and everything. It leads to revolution. It leads to disorder, not order. We're going backwards, my friends. We think we've improved communications. Okay, but the speed at which it goes and the reaction that it engenders is so quick that I believe, I believe now even more because of Twitter and Facebook that Lord Jesus Christ is coming back sooner than we think. Amen? Well, let's go to a prophetic history and civics lesson because I think we need to understand this. Let's go to Revelation 13 and see the parallel now. Revelation 13 from the New International Version says, Because of the signs he... That is, the lamb-like Protestant America, we the people, was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, that is, papal Rome. Remember, Revelation 13 is divided in two categories. The first ten verses, the history of the Holy Roman Empire, known as the papacy, the Catholic Church, how it was wounded by a sword, okay, mortally wounded, and it was mortally wounded because its uh, ambassadors from other nations, um, emissaries, were withdrawn. The Pope was captured. It was no longer viewed as a sovereign nation state or recognized as such. It was reduced just to a church. Remember, Roman Catholic Church is both a church and a sovereign nation state, the only church of its kind that has that recognition, okay? So understand that. It has that much power, both at the United Nations and when it comes to ambassadorships, it has more ambassadorships in countries, in nations around the world than the United States. It dwarfs it. It's 186 nations it's in. I think the United States is only in like 92 or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the power of Rome is much more significant than most people realize. And especially with the current pope, uh, reviving that sense of ecumenical flair that Pope John Paul II had, and this, I, this approach towards this ecumenical unity, um, reaching out to all faith groups, is very significant. I think it's very significant. We need to watch it. But notice, it says, He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. There, there, there's this a unity that occurred in verse 12 of Revelation 13, in which there was a collusion, this alliance of which Rome, the second power, and the United States, the first power, and then the threefold power that will come later in verse 13, um, described as this fire coming down from out of heaven, this light, okay, this, this spirit, this ecumenical movement in which um, the religions of the world come together to solve the world's problems because the politicians of the world can't do it. The people look to the religious leaders, so this fire, this 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 amazing worldwide revival, um, as if this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a worldwide revival, it's actually a counterfeit, it's false. And it's led by Rome and Satan himself, who pretends to be Christ. That's verse 13. That's prior to 14. So you got the context here. Let me read it again. Because, he, because of the signs, he, lamb-like Protestant America, we the people, was given power to do on the first behalf of the first beast, that is papal Rome. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He, that is we the people, ordered them through Congress to set up an image in honor of the beast, that is in honor of Rome, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay? Verse 15, he was given power to give breath to the image. 
We're going to discover what the image is here in a minute in prophecy. In the likeness of, that is, of the first beast, Papal Rome, so that it could speak and cause through its legislative authority all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Now, everything I've just repeated to you that's in parentheses there is a traditional Adventist message. That's why I've heard it my whole life. So there's nothing aberrant there or unusual. There's nothing, I'm not going beyond any of anything our scholars have said. I've checked this out with the Biblical Research Institute. It's solid. But my question is, how do we, the people, ever get to that point in Revelation? Have you ever wondered that yourself? Have you ever wondered how in the world do we ever get to that point? I don't have all the answers, but what I'm about to share with you makes complete sense. And yes, you might say this verges on speculation, but I don't think so. As someone who has uh, um, immersed himself with church-state constitutional history here in the United States, um, I believe that I can get a glimpse of what's being talked about here. And Revelation 13 has been a lifelong study for me. I'm sure it has probably for you, too. James Madison, who was considered the father of the Constitution, who's uh, the one that um, basically was the grand mastermind behind the, the checks and balances and the separation of powers we know as the executive congressional and judicial branches um, with all of its internal checks and balances, even the internal checks and balances in the very wording of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and especially the First Amendment, um, said that his biggest fear was we the people. In fact, he wrote in his Federalist Papers, his most famous ones, 51 and, and um, 78, he wrote in there that basically the Constitution was written not only to give the people freedoms, but also to safeguard and to even put a check on an out-of-control we the people through, through a representative government. Okay? And I won't get into the entire political science of that, because it's quite deep. But here's what he spoke, and it was recorded in the congressional records in the very first U.S. Congress in 1789. Here's what he said, and you can find this in the Bill of Rights, writings that, with writings that formed its foundation. You get this in Washington, D.C., in every bookstore uh, available. The prescriptions in favor of liberty ought to be leveled against that quarter where the greatest danger lies, namely that which possesses the highest prerogative of power. But this is not found in either the executive or legislative departments of government, but in the body of the people operating by the majority against the minority. Why is he saying this? He's using this as his argument for the need for a Bill of Rights, that the will of the majority will sometimes intrude on the necessary rights that should be guaranteed of the minority. Okay? And they must not be abused. He also recognized, and this may be new to you, but um, it's one of the only areas that I believe, agree with Justice Antonin Scalia on, even, although he's terrible on free exercise and establishment clause rulings. He, he essentially says that we have to balance the will of the people represented by the Constitution, that is the will of the majority, with the rights of minorities guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. Okay? Sometimes 
he, he writes, and he's written in several of his opinions, sometimes we have to side with the majority against the abusive will of the minority, which is an interesting perspective. And you have to balance those two out. Uh, and I think he's correct how he, how he ends up getting there in his opinions. I mostly disagree with, but nevertheless, I think his reasoning is sound. So what's interesting is he had written some letters to Thomas Jefferson a few years prior arguing against the need for a Bill of Rights. And these were letters to Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson kept saying, no, we need a Bill of Rights. We need a Bill of Rights. And Madison wasn't going along with it. And his argument was the following, which still makes sense, but he was saying, hey, we don't need a Bill of Rights because religious freedom arises naturally from that multiplicity of sects or religions which pervades America and which is the best and only security for religious liberty in any society. For where there is such a variety of sects or religions, there cannot be a majority, the masses, of any one sect to oppress and persecute the rest. Well, it's a nice statement, but he finally concluded that we needed a Bill of Rights, and thank goodness. He also wrote in Memorial and Remonstrance, number eight, what influence, in fact, have ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical establishments had on civil society? In some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of civil authority. In many instances, they have been seen upholding the thrones of political tyranny. In, in no instance have they been seen, been seen the guardians of the liberties of the people. And that's true. He also wrote just a couple years before he died, to a Reverend Adams who was trying to establish Christianity as the religion of the land and to get Congress to do so and also to fund all churches that were Christian equally, that is, in a non-discriminatory mode. And Madison was outraged, and he wrote to him after examining his sermons that he was giving all over South Carolina and North Carolina, he said, no. He says, you don't get it. You're losing perspective of history here. He said, history and experience will be an admitted umpire. In the papal system, government and religion are in a manner consolidated, and that is found to be the worst of governments. James Madison wrote, that's on my wall in my office uh, at the North Pacific Union Conference. Uh, an amazing statement for a founding father to make. My friends, we're told in The Great Controversy, page 443, Ellen White says, the papacy, a church that controlled the power of the state. And when you see the words a church today, especially in our democratic system with no one church dominating another, we would look at it more of as an ecumenical union, religions coming together. The papacy or religious powers, at least in our time, but then... The papacy, a church that controlled the power of the state and employed it to further her own ends, especially for the punishment of heresy. That's the definition of the papacy. And indeed, history demonstrates that. And I don't know of any historian that really uh, completely disagrees with that. Great Controversy 443. This is a statement you must write down. You need to start writing it down now if you're going to. This is one of the most powerful statements in all the spirit of prophecy. And it must not be ignored because it provides the paradigm or model for understanding church and state, especially in the last days. In order for the United States, our beloved country, to form an image of the beast, you ever wanted to know what the image of the beast is? Here it is. 
You want to hear the description of the image to the beast? Here it is. It's a church state description. It's really simple. The religious power or powers, plural, power here is plural, must so control the civil government. Did you get that? Does it say there secular humanists, atheists, gays, communists, socialists must so control the civil government? Does it say that? I challenge you. Does it say that? No. Is your head in the wrong place? Are you starting to believe a lie by listening to all those radio talk show hosts or TV, cable TV networks? My friends, it says the religious power or powers must so control the civil government that the authority of the state will also be employed by the church or religious powers, ecumenical force of religious powers to accomplish your own ends. And what are those ends? What's the agenda? To establish Christ's kingdom on the earth for a thousand years through moral legislation. Moral legislation that you and I would be, and I believe should be, supportive of in many instances. But we need to be careful and understand the bigger picture. We must understand the big picture, my friends. If we don't understand the big picture, we're going to be deceived. Ellen White walked that fine balance promoting national moral reform while at the same time urging A.T. Jones to oppose national Sunday law legislation in U.S. Congress in 1888. My friends, that's a fine line to walk, isn't it? We need to capture that in, in these last days. We need to stand for what is right because it is right. Amen? Okay? But at the same time, and I'm not going to define what's right for you, at this point. If you want to ask questions, fine later, but I'm not going to define that for you. I'm not going to try to make you believe certain things uh, in regard to legislation. That's not my role. I want you to see the big prophetic picture here. Remember this paradigm because we're going to come back to it. We're told in Great Controversy 442, the founders of the nation wisely sought to guard against the employment of secular power on the part of the church with its inevitable result in tolerance and persecution. Indeed, the lessons are clear. We're told in the fifth volume of the Testimonies something very interesting, proving that it's not a top-down thing that happens in the last days where the federal government's trying to conspire to control you. Now, I realize the whole surveillance issue, which apparently President Obama was just on TV just a, a few minutes ago, if not an hour ago, explaining to the nation that um, um, he was planning to put more regulations, more stipulations, more um, to make the surveillance program, the FISA program, um, uh, more transparent to the American public and, and the promise of that. So we'll see where that goes. I, I have no idea, especially after the Snowden uh, incident and uh, his um, immigrating temporarily to Russia, um, which of course has caused uh, a snafu between the um, Russian premier and President Obama. But notice what Sister White says. To secure popularity and patronage, ah, yeah, 
tickling the funny bone of the legislators, the politicians, of Pilate, to secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield, it says, not shall yield, maybe yield, it says, will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. Now, we first have to ask, who are legislators? Well, there's only two branches of the federal government that legislate, okay? There's Congress that legislates. They make laws, but the president has to either sign them or veto them. So the president can even put forward competing laws to the Senate or the House, okay, in order to make sure his agenda or bill gets through. We see that oftentimes. Okay, so the president, in a way, with his bully pulpit, is a legislator, correct? It's correct. I mean, we've seen it from uh, day one. I mean, I've seen it my whole life, from Nixon on, and especially with Ronald Reagan and, and Clinton and, and uh, Bush and, and Obama. Clearly, we've seen that. So they would meet this definition of legislators, all right? They will yield to the demand. Who's making the demand? Who? We the people make the demand. The fickle will of we the people. We the people is the beginning of what document? The Constitution, it's the preamble, the very opening words of the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We the people. We the people. Wow. Note, it's not a top-down hierarchical movement in which the U.S. government creates a conspiracy and schemes to control us. It's a bottom-up, grassroots movement of religious powers inspiring we the people to make foolish and unconstitutional demands of our government. My friends, we're there. We're, we're, we're there. People are fed up. They turn to Tea Party, and then they turn to whatever variational metamorphosis out of that or any other abstraction because they, we, we long to be independent of two parties that seem, can't seem to figure things out. But where does that lead us? Hmm. Leads us to maybe the longing for confederacy, states' rights to the extreme, all the same arguments that were put forward prior to the Civil War. It's like we're revisiting the Civil War today. And it blows my mind away. It really does. And it's very dangerous. I mean, I think of the whole issue of abortion. I think of the gay marriage movement. I think of the whole idea of the Heritage Foundation and also um, the Christian Rights uh, Foundation, the uh, family heritage program that um, Tony Perkins heads up in Washington, D.C., already saying to governors and states and legislatures, resist, resist laws that you don't agree with and even nullify them and even come to the point of declaring that we will secede, okay? If you don't believe that, I think I have it here. Here it is. Atlantic Journal pointed out just last year that 28 states called for annulment or nullification of federal laws. If it didn't meet what they viewed to be the founders' original intent on the issues of abortion, gay marriage, government sponsorship and mandated prayer in public schools, 
not student-led prayer, which is constitutional. They want to go beyond that. Um, and so on and so forth. Who knows what's next? But they had a 15-point criteria, uh, specifically the state of Missouri, but there were 27 other states that uh, put forward similar proposals, and they were all uh, defeated, and uh, many of them passed out of their houses but didn't make it through the Senate. And they were all, every single one of them, resolutions put forward by the Tea Party, which just blew me away. The spirit of nullification and the spirit of secession and revolution, even constitutional revolution, is alive and well, my friends. Notice what Sister White says in Volume 5 of the Testimonies. By the decree enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. Now some might say, well, see, that's the gay movement. Well, it's, you got to remember, there's, there's, in, in, Political science, uh, there's, it's simple, you can understand this, there's, there's um, point and counterpoint. There's a proposal and a reaction to a proposal. There's always reaction. I call it, we have yet to see the real blowback, and forgive that statement, but I believe that we're going to see blowback, a militant uprising in this country like we have never seen before. People so upset, and morally and righteously so. But I wonder how a revolution could ever take place in this country. Is it going to be a revolution in which gay marriage advocates and secular humanists and atheists and communists and socialists overtake this country like you hear propaganda say? No, Ellen White says it's going to be just the opposite. Just the opposite. In fact, there was a um, John Meacham who was editor of Newsweek magazine in, in 2005. It was a special issue on uh, a special survey on religion in America, and it was put forward by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life and Baylor University, my alma mater, um, in Texas. They had put a survey together on the state of Christianity in America, and it had gone down from 82% professed Christians in America to 77 and they say, uh, depending on the highest rate of level of profession to the lowest, which it could even be secular humanists and mainstream Protestant, within your Methodists and Episcopalians, the more intellectual class down there, uh, maybe even 72%. But he said one thing is clear throughout American history that this poll demonstrates and that he is a, not only a journalist, but a historian notes, he said that, that America is always comes back and bounces back to being a center-right nation. Center-right, not center and center-left or liberal or extreme conservative to the right. It always bounces back to the center-right. And he noted in an article, it was the cover issue before Newsweek vanished, it was no longer published, he says, it's indicative that extreme right-wing propaganda is becoming now mainstream and we don't even recognize it. It's become acceptable. Now, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. Um, I'm much more conservative than you may think I am. But I'm just letting you know, I'm trying to do, present this to you from an unbiased um, perspective from what I'm seeing prophetically. 
Our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness when Protestantism shall stretch your hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, which we've already seen has happened uh, through several presidencies, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, which I view as the New Age movement, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution. She says in another place that we will abolish our constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan at the end is near. Now, I don't, I don't know what you view on the contraception mandate or other things, but I see a Catholic redefinition of religious freedom taking place in this country that people are buying into. And I don't want to get in depth about that. But Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 445, when, when the leading churches come together and demand that the government sustain their institutions, fund it, and then demand that, that their doctrines become the law of the land using those government funds to affect the laws of the land, to follow its mission and its principles, to bend the arm to where the religious powers manipulate and control the state. When you come to that point, that becomes a watershed moment. And she says, then the image of the Roman hierarchy will be seen and an image of the beast will be formed. My friends, we're marching down that road very, very imperceptibly uh, in the minds of most people. They just don't see it, but we need to see it. Again, I come back to the statement, in order for the United States to form an image of the beast, the religious power or powers must control the civil government. You say, oh, well, we don't see that happening now. Give it time. And by the way, as I will point out, and I give a whole other lecture on this, but not today, the religious left, the interfaith left, is just as harmful, and I've written two articles in Liberty Magazine about it, is just as harmful to religious freedom as the Christian right is. Christian right wants to abolish or deny the separation of church and state, and the Christian left, they've got a problem. The interfaith left, I should say, they have a problem, and their problem is... It's called collective censorship. You can gather all the religions in one room. I know because I sit on the board of the Interfaith Council of Greater Portland. And, it, and, and I've seen it worldwide. I've seen it overseas. This idea, you get all the religions in one room and you have to ask permission to share your faith. And if, it give you, if one religion objects, then you cannot share your faith. And usually that doesn't happen. And if you go outside that room and share your faith, especially in Islamic countries or anywhere else, that's considered blasphemy and worthy of death. And that proposition has been put forward uh, as a means of maybe, and by President Obama in his trips to um, Turkey, Egypt, his speeches, both places, and also Indonesia in 2010, he put forward this interfaith left proposal as a first step towards democracy. Now, he wasn't applying that to the West or to the United States, but he was giving in to this interfaith approach or definition of religious freedom, which, as I pointed out in two articles in Liberty Magazine, uh, published in the last couple of years, these two issues, uh, is very dangerous. And the interfaith left in America is growing stronger and stronger. I was just reading an article in New York Times Magazine last week saying that they've made a lot of, they've, they've done some studies and they've noticed that the rise of the interfaith left is growing stronger and stronger in this country. And it brings me back to the trial of Christ. The chief priests and the Sanhedrin was made up of who? 
was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who weren't chief priests, but they were the elders. Okay, And it mentioned the elders there in Mark 15 at Christ's trial, the chief priests and the elders. Well, you look, at, you look at that. You see the Pharisees representing the, Christ, the, the Jewish rite of Christ's day. All right, And the Sadducees, oh, we like Rome's paychecks and we want to keep the status quo. They liked big government and they liked to keep, be kept in power. They represented the, the left, the religious and political left of Christ's day. And they came together to unite to get rid of Christ. Very instructive lesson, isn't it? What power is Ellen White talking about? The religious powers, not communist socialism, not secular humanism or atheism. There are three types of socialism out there, and, and technically there, there are about ten, but I don't want to get into all those. The three major ones are communist forms of socialism, which we saw with the rise of the Soviet Union and China. And then there's democratic, which is the modern European model as we see today. And we see evidences of that in the United States with the emergence of, of Obamacare and other issues. We clearly see a move towards democratic forms of socialism. That's not to condemn Obamacare. It's just to let you know that, that socialism has been part of our fabric from Nixon. Actually, you can clear, clear back to Teddy Roosevelt. There have been elements that have risen uh, that are clearly socialistic. But then there is fascist form of socialism, which, by the way, most oftentimes in history has been pushed forward and planted and advanced and championed by the Christian right. Okay? Hitler, in the book by Professor Robert P. Erickson of Pacific Lutheran University, entitled Complicity in the Holocaust, Churches and Universities in Nazi Germany. And this book is hot off the press, just came out last year, and it's, he's the foremost on the history of the Holocaust. And he talks about how basically uh, German scholars and the Christian right, the Lutheran Church, and the Catholic Church, very reluctantly, but they came along with it, they are the ones that propped up Hitler and created a monster. And this book points this out, and it's very detailed. It's very well written, printed by Oxford University Press. Uh, astounding. But I'm amazed because it makes total sense to me. It's another form of socialism. Government planning is socialism. Government planning of any kind is socialism. Okay? Social engineering. You've heard those terms in political science. Well, whether it's Mussolini, Hitler... Uh, whoever, um, clearly that is a form of socialism that we often don't think about. Is socialism coming to us from another angle? Maybe perhaps we need to instruct Glenn Beck on that point. My wife and I took on our 25th wedding anniversary a couple of years uh, a walking tour of the French Revolution in Paris. Very fascinating. It's led by a University of Pennsylvania professor, a woman whose father had died and had led the tour for 35 years. And she took over very nicely, uh, passing on his legacy. And um, we walked Paris. And at the end of the tour, she said, did you notice anything that was missing? And I said, yeah, there's no monument to the French Revolution. And she says, that's right. There's no monument to the French Revolution. 
And she said, why do you think that is? Well, I said, I have my ideas, but let, her, let other people answer. And nobody would answer. So she went ahead and answered. And this is what got me started in this sermon. It's because of her. Oh, you blame her. Um, she says, it's the fickle will of the people. In 10 years, or less than 10 years, just like the English Revolution under Cromwell, the people got fed up. They couldn't govern. They didn't know how to govern. Those who promised that they could, that led the revolution, Robespierre and others, they couldn't govern. They couldn't restore the economy. They had gotten rid of, of, of King Louis XVI and Antoinette. If you've ever been to her summer's palace, quite nice, by the way. Um, and, and so they got rid of the monarchy, including the Roman Catholic Church, the dual monarchy of Roman Catholicism and secular monarchy of the Louis, who, by the way, were quite popular with the people, but because, you know, um, uh, the economy was so bad and, and so on, they started to uh, turn. And um, in the end, who waltzes in? Napoleon launches a cannonball at the parliament, French parliament, takes over the country, and the people applaud him. You notice that when you go to Paris, all the monuments are to who? The Sun King, Louis XIV, and Napoleon. You notice that? Yeah, I know Napoleon's ego is everywhere, but the people loved him. He was a benevolent dictator. The people absolutely loved him because he restored law and order and gave them their food, gave them jobs, restored the economy. People loved him. Ah, the fickle will of the people. Do anything for bread and butter. Yes, that's the essence of all politics is bread and butter, my friends. Well, to wrap up, I want to give you some more parallels just to finish off. David Brooks. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention one thing. Um, in the New York Review of Books, former Supreme Court Justice, who just retired a few years ago, John Paul Stevens uh, did some book reviews of several um, constitutional scholars, including Sanford Levinson, who want to rewrite the Constitution. There's a new call, both by left-wing scholars and right-wing scholars, to abolish the Constitution and re rewrite it. Okay, the right wing wants to make it a Christian nation as if they don't understand that they condemn Sharia law and they're afraid of Sharia law and they're afraid of Muslims, but yet they would make this land uh, the, a Christian nation and, and, and go by uh, the Ten Commandments. Well, what's the difference? I mean, get a brain. I just, you know, that's really, I don't know what they're thinking. It's ridiculous. But... He writes in here, uh, should we have a new constitutional convention to rewrite the Constitution? My friends, there's such talk right now. It's real. Ah, <clears throat> uh, yes, here we go. I was going to share with you, the, there's an article that was an opinion piece by Thomas Edsall in the New York Times. Has the GOP gone off the deep end? And, uh, you know, it's a shame. Um, I'm a Lincoln. I'm a Lincoln man. And uh, to see how the GOP has gone the direction they've gone just, just breaks me up. Um, 
he, he writes in here, the Republican Party is becoming less and less like a traditional political party in a representative democracy and becoming more like an apocalyptic cult or one of the intensely ideological authoritarian parties of the 20th, of 20th century Europe. And then he points out that a good 35% of Congress is represented by the South or Southern states, the original 11 Confederate states. And they are the Tea Party members that block all legislation. That's why nothing's getting done. And how Republicans in the mainstream, the moderates, are really, uh, there's a civil war within the Republican Party right now, if you haven't noticed. It's, it's incredible. Um, Bobby Jindal, calling his party the stupid party. Um, which, you know, I, it's a shame. I don't think it's a stupid party at all. Uh, I don't think the Democratic Party is a stupid party. They're just, I, I disagree with labor unions. And I, um, there's lots of things I disagree with on the, on the Republican side with the Christian rights influence as well. But there seems to be more of a wedding between the Tea Party and the Christian right. The one thing that this author didn't understand is, and he sort of mocks him, saying, oh, yeah, the Tea Party's dying, and it's a wacko party. It's not going anywhere. But David Brooks, the conservative columnist for the only conservative column, well, I guess Ross Dutat is also a conservative columnist for the New York Times. All the rest are liberal because it's quite a liberal newspaper. But David Brooks, who's very thoughtful, conservative, um, wrote a column a couple years ago called The Tea Party Teens. And in the last paragraph, he writes this. He says, in the near term, the Tea Party tendency will dominate the Republican Party. It could even be the ruin of the party, he writes, pulling it in an angry direction that suburban voters will not tolerate. But don't underestimate the deep reservoirs of public disgust. Then, sort of as an allusion to Hitler, here's what he says. If there is a double-dip recession, a long period of stagnation, a fiscal crisis, a terrorist attack, or some other major scandal or, or event, kind of like Germany prior to World War II, the country could demand total constitutional change, he says. Did you get that? Total constitutional change, creating a vacuum that only the Tea Party movement and its inheritors would be in a position to, fulfill, to fill. Does that sound like an era gone by back in the 1940s? Germany, Nazi Germany rising up? My friends, you, you may, and I'm not, again, I'm sure they're well-meaning people with calling for less government, less spending, austerity. I understand that. Alexander Hamilton wouldn't have gone along with that, the economic genius of this country way back at the founding who believed, like the Simpson-Bowles plan today, that you must both cut spending and increase taxes at the same time in order to restore the economy, which he did in the 1791 crisis and which Governor Brown is doing successfully in California right now, um, which doesn't get reported very widely, but it's, it's, that's exactly what's happening. California is coming back into force, and that's what's basically holding up the economy and starting to turn the the country around. The only problem is it's only one state. The Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, there was a poll taken that 79% of Tea Party members seek to amend the Constitution to establish America as a Christian nation by law more than they seek economic reform and stability, which demonstrates how the Christian right has sort of co-opted the Tea Party because the Tea Party didn't start out that way. They started out just with economic concerns, which to their, to their credit, I just need to point that out. But the first convention of the Tea Party 
was in 2010, and the keynote speaker was Sarah Palin. And I had to rush back to the hotel from Brookings, Oregon, where I was speaking that weekend, that evening to watch the first convention of the Tea Party. And she made this huge appeal to unemployed blue-collar labor union workers. And after that appeal, the membership roles of the Tea Party soared among union members in the United States. You know, the Joe Plumbers of the world, remember that in the 2008 election? Yeah. And they represent 27% of the Tea Party, which is interesting because the other statistic is that 90%, nearly 90% are Catholic Tea Party members union members, which I find fascinating. And the reason why I bring this up because of a personal experience I've had, well, first two things. Governor, or, or excuse me, then Senator Scott Brown of Massachusetts, who remember initially took the seat of Ted Kennedy um, a few years ago. Wall Street Journal headline, union households gave boost to GOP's Brown. The FLCIO membership, 59% voted for a Tea Party Republican. Pretty amazing in Ted Kennedy's own state. That was just, that just blew me away. But then when I was lobbying at the Washington legislature on a forced unionization of all childcare centers, both public and private and religious in the state of Washington, basically saying to every employee, you are now a union member um, and you will pay un forced union dues and so on and so forth. I fought that and we won. Um, it took a lot of effort to defeat that because it had already passed the House, but we defeated it in the Senate. But I discovered among the 19 Republican senators, there were only 19 at that time, five of them who, unbeknownst to the other Republicans, were solidly behind that bill. They were all Catholic and Tea Party members including our own senator from Clark County in Vancouver, Washington, whose name I will not mention. He's still there and very powerful. I won't go into the brewing spirit of nullification. We've already done that, and I've already talked about the interfaith left with Obama. But where were the disciples? Where are you in all this in the crowd dynamics? Where are you among the masses? Are we watching and following at a distance? being safeguarded and prepared by the Holy Spirit to advance a far more important revolution, Christ's counter-revolutionary movement, the final cry, cry of the a third angel, come out of her, my people, and receive not the mark of the beast, nor worship his image. Are we part of that movement? Are we part of the fickle crowd, making our political prejudices more important than Jesus and his teachings for these last days? That's, a, that's an important question, is it not, to ask? It really is. You can have your political prejudices, my friends. I can have mine. But in the end, if we do not allow the Word of God to guide us, we will allow the other to obscure the Word of God, and we will be misled and deceived. We will be like Judas, who went and hung himself after he realized he had given up the Son of God to be crucified. My friends, we don't want to be there. We don't want to be part of that group. The essence of the third angel's message for these last days is that we are saved by Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. Not by any man, no matter how good intentioned they are. Not by any system. Not by any man-made pharisaical means to save ourselves and the world. 
which is a means of work salvation via legislation. No, that's, that's, that's definitely not the way we want to go. We are not saved by any man or church, and neither can our beloved nation save us, my friends. Only Jesus Christ can. We need to get to that point, that mode in our life, where we are Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ and him alone, and not our nation and our country, and yet at the same time love our beloved country. Amen? I hope this has been helpful to you. In closing, I want to end with one reference. Because the disciples, after Christ resurrected, he came to them on the shores of Galilee. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 1. And he spent, it says, 40 days teaching them again of everything he had taught them and, and revisiting everything he taught them, stressing two things, Desire of Ages points out, that, that this kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he taught them the true nature of his kingdom. Okay? And that why he had come to die, to save them eternally and to save all of mankind for eternity, at least those who would accept him. And yet in verse 8, or verse 6, the disciples, after 40 days of this, come up to him, Savior, Master, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still thought they were still on this grand political revolutionary tour that they're going to revive that experience they had with him for three and a half years and they were going to establish Christ's kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Read in Desire of Ages. They still didn't get it. You could say, oh, dumb and dumber, but, you know, we could say maybe some of us are in that dumber, dumber mode. I know, for me, I was for many years. I grew up in a very strong Republican household. And, uh, you know, it's very hard both, uh, and it was hard for my grandpa, who was a solid FDR New Deal Democrat. Uh, our, our family was kind of divided, but it was interesting. I listened to both sides, and I've always been an independent thinker, and that's probably why. But I look at the disciples here, and Christ's patience with them. We need to have patience with one another and not judge each other unnecessarily in terms of uh, political matters. Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, page 44, when they finally met in the upper room, which Jesus told them at the Sea of Galilee, he'll go back to the upper room and the Comforter will speak to you, will be with you, make things right with one another. So they went back and Acts of the Apostles says this, page 44, under the influence of this heavenly illumination, that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures that Christ had explained to the disciples stood out before them with the luster of perfect truth. The veil that had prevented them from seeing to the end of that which had been abolished was now removed. <clears throat> and they comprehended with perfect clearness the object of Christ's mission and the nature or the true nature of his kingdom. Amen? They finally got it. Do we get it? They could speak with power of the Savior, and as they unfolded to their hearers the plan of salvation, many were convicted and convinced. The traditions and superstitions inculcated by the priests were swept away from their minds, and the teachings of the Savior were finally accepted. Amen? They got so excited because they finally understood. Oh, my friends, the power of the Holy Spirit led them to the day of Pentecost. They preached with holy boldness. We've got to get to that point when we let, let the shackles fall off of us, my friends. The shackles that hold us back from being totally immersed in God's Word and following Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? 
That's where we need to be. If we want to have a revival in our midst, we've got to come to the same point the disciples did in their life. That's where we need to be. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we pray that, that you continue to be patient with us. We need, we need your patience and your love. We know that you've been loving and patient with us, and we know the promise that you will continue to do so. But Lord, help us, confused like the disciples, help us to finally see the light. Help us to have our hearts and minds and our lives change completely so that we follow you wherever you would send us, that we will be bold, bold spokesmen for you. We will be bold and yet humble in everything we do for you. Lord, give us that vision. Help us to cut through all the nonsense that's out there. Help us to shut off our TVs and the talking heads on radio and to follow you and follow you alone. Prepare us, equip us to be your champions, to be your patriarchs, to be your prophets, if so be, to be your special people, your disciples, your apostles on this earth in these last days. How else are people going to understand you, the true Savior, instead of a counterfeit? May we be dedicated to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.